Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Sarah, a white mom from Houston. This is Better Schools Through Parent Empowerment. And I'm thrilled to be joined today by Sarah. She's on the Parent Advisory Board here at Integrated Schools and has been part of the organization since its early days. Sarah, why don't you tell us a bit about how you got involved with Integrated Schools? Well, through the magic of Courtney McKinton, our late great founder. It was the early days uh, just as Integrated Schools was taking shape. My oldest uh, daughter was enrolled at a really white dominant Montessori magnet school that has a thousand person waiting list. Originally, we felt very lucky to have gotten a spot, but kind of as we got in the school and understood the culture and some of the dynamics, the racial dynamics that were going on were or beginning to question things. Courtney found me on Facebook, I think really randomly. And she was the first person to really validate my questions about all of it, of the things that I was seeing and tell me, no, you're not alone in thinking these and right. you don't you don't have to stay at that school. Your kids don't have to stay at that school if you don't like it. Mm. And Courtney was really the first person to give me the the freedom to believe that something different was possible and the encouragement to take action to do something about it. Right. And so we moved our kids from the white dominant Montessori magnet school to a very typical Houston ISD neighborhood school that is predominantly Latinx and where we are one of a handful of white families uh, in the school. Yes. And you've been an integral part of the organization since then. And that's why I was so grateful when you agreed to join me for this episode about parent empowerment. And our guest today is actually someone that you've worked with in Houston for a while. Is that right? That's right. He is one of my favorite people. His name is Aurelio Montemayor, and he works for the Intercultural Research Development Association, known in Texas as IDRA. They have a special focus on working with and advocating for Latinx and bilingual students. But he has been helping organize parents in my children's school's feeder pattern, which is primarily Latinx students. Hmm. He comes to meet with parents in our community every month, um, although that has been a little bit curtailed due to COVID. His passion for parents and parent voice in education is really immediately evident when you're in the, the same room as him. Yeah, he was amazing. It was great to get to speak to him. He's had this long career that I'm sure could have moved on to other things at some point, but he's still at it, organizing parents, pushing for schools to be responsive to parents. And yeah, he seems to just like fundamentally believe that that's the path to equity, that that's the path to better schools is that parents have to be involved and and that the parents who are involved have to be representative of the community. That's right. He beats the drum for that. Parents have to be empowered, but we come in with different levels based on the structure of the school's white supremacy culture. So his words are powerful, and we also have to resist the temptation to hear him calling us white and privileged parents to get more involved or be more empowered. Who is empowered is also really, really important in this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the tension. Parent empowerment is important, but which parents are empowered naturally versus which parents need to have the system be a little more accommodating in order to empower empower them is also important. So That's right. All right. Let's take a listen to the conversation with Mr. Montemayor. My name is Aurelio Montemayor. I'm a senior education specialist at the Intercultural Development Research Association. And I've been the point person for family engagement for quite a few years here at the organization. I started in education in 1964 as a high school English teacher. Wow. What is IDRA? The Intercultural Development Research Association was started in 1973 by Dr. Jose Cárdenas. He had been superintendent of the poorest school district in the state at that time here in San Antonio. And he decided to start this organization to inform the people of Texas about how unjust our system was for for financing our schools. That's how we started, you know, almost 50 years ago. We work in both policy, research, and practice in education. How did you transition from teaching to IDRA? Well, I was a high school English teacher. I grew up in Laredo, a border town, border with Mexico. And then I started teaching in Del Rio, which is a smaller border town. And I started as a teacher realizing that there were serious flaws in both how I was prepared as a teacher and what we needed to teach kids. 
and uh, very concerned about a lot of things. So I, I became very much involved in the Chicano movement. That was in 1968. Became an activist and uh, lost several jobs, left several towns during that period. <laughs> Went off and co-founded a Chicano college. And then uh, so I was going to go f- work on my PhD in California. And they called me from Texas that IDRA was uh, starting to expand. And I came down here and I've been here since 75. And our work has been in teacher training. I'm the lead trainer at the organization, so I've done a lot of workshops and training of trainers, uh, done research, evaluation. But all along, I, I, my focus became more and more family engagement and a particular form of family engagement in education that we call family leadership. Yeah, so you, you've worked your way from being in the classroom to organizing and found yourself in this realm of family engagement. What does family engagement mean to you? And why is it important? There's four major strands in parent involvement. Traditional parent involvement, if you think of the PTA model, for example, is the the parent is is a volunteer, kind of a cheap labor pool for the school. (laughs) And I say that because there's a large number of moms, especially, who are intelligent and either they're stay-home moms or they work, but they also volunteer a lot for school. But they're underutilized because bringing in $1,000 of cupcakes that I sell won't really in any way modify the, the quality of the education the kids are getting. Mm-hmm. It won't help them advocate for a, a, a better school finance system so that they, the principal doesn't have to raise extra money to buy another computer or wherever it is. And it's not a bad thing, and a lot of parents are glad to do it, but it, it doesn't lead to any collective action to improve the education in that school or school district. Mm. Then another, another branch of parent involvement is the education of the parent to be a better parent. So you'll have workshops on how to help with the homework, discipline at home, teenagers and drugs. You know, there's a whole array of needs that parents have to be a better parent. And it's it's not a hard sell because you push the guilt button on the parent. Are you the best parent? You know, mm-hmm. and so so there's nothing wrong with it. And parents of all classes and races want that. But again, it's an offering that helps the individual parent become a better parent. But there's no communication of those families around. Well, how do we help uh, get the kids have higher math scores, for example, or whatever it is that that are the issues around the learning context for the children in, in the school. It doesn't, it doesn't drive change at the school level. No, no, just not at, the at all. Just at the parent or family level. Right. Then there's another aspect of parent engagement that is adult education. So, for example, schools will offer to, to recent immigrant parents uh, classes in English as a second language. Mm-hmm. In some places they do crafts. There's uh, classes where parents come and they learn how to sew or do things like that. It's self-development of the adult in a variety mm-hmm. of ways. And in many communities, there's a great need for that. Again, it's helping the individual and helping the family, but it doesn't focus on what's happening in the school and how can we improve the school. Then the fourth branch, the one that we are solely interested in in my organization is family leadership and education. The parents coming together around having the best possible school where our children attend and connecting as a group to do something about it. And so in our model, we want leadership, but not an individualistic leadership, but a collective one where you have rotating leadership, families connecting with families around it, because the idea is to build a community around that school that pushes for excellence and for the best possible a context for the children and where the families are welcomed into the school and they're part of the decision-making process and those things that are appropriate for parents to, to be decision makers. And so that's the family leadership focus. That's awesome. Yeah. So I, I wonder like that finding that balance between what things are the responsibility of the school and what things are the responsibility of the parent community seems like a challenge to me. I feel like at least I see a lot in, in schools in Denver, parent communities getting pushed out from meaningful discussions about what's happening in the school. They may not have a lot of insight into what exactly is the best math curriculum, but but they do know whether or not their kids are getting it. How do how do you how do you walk that line? Well, the thing is, first of all, educators generally when they're prepared to be teachers or administrators aren't given much training or development in terms of, of authentic family engagement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You need to have a school 
that's not just family friendly. In other words, parents can come in and, and join their children for a meal or whatever, that the school values and understands the role of the parent, that the parent is the strongest ally for those children to yeah. learn. In other words, I, I as an administrator cannot be afraid of somebody who's my best ally. And yet you find quite a few principals that are in other ways pretty well-intentioned, afraid of the parent voice, afraid, mm. you know, so that there's a separation and distrust. And it's especially a serious problem with poor families, families that are economically disadvantaged, with families of color, that if the family or the parents, what experience they had in the public school system was negative, they already come somewhat not comfortable in that setting. So what I think I hear you saying is that a deficit mindset from the administration can continue to perpetuate harm to parents mm. who may have already been harmed by school systems in the past. Is that right? Yeah, I think the, the, biggest, the biggest problem is a serious one and hard to handle because it has to do with the lens that you look at something through. It's just like there were these researchers in Chicago some years back that said, you can see a neighborhood from two major points of view. You come and you're seeing it as a drug-infested, hopeless area that's, right. that's just a mess economically and socially, blah, 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 blah. Or you come and you say, given the situation in this neighborhood, yes, there are poor, there are problems. But look, these three ladies here are great seamstresses. And, and, and this man here is a carpenter. You know, In other words, like when you start seeing the assets in a neighborhood and you look at it through that lens, you're already viewing it in a very different way than if you're looking through the deficit lens. And so when schools see children from a particular neighborhood or children from a particular racial group or economic group, through a particular lens, you're already tainting every judgment and everything you do about it. Mm. And, and, and so that's, that's a serious dilemma, both for the teacher in the classroom, as well as for the whole family in that school, because the first turnaround that has to happen is there is intelligence and experience in those families mm -hmm. that I, as an educator, have to acknowledge and say, without romanticizing or idealizing, I mean, there are problems in families but across all races and all classes, you can go to the wealthiest right. part of town. You can have drug abuse and, and, and emotional abandonment of children and all this other stuff. But money sometimes tends to buffer things. And this is not to romanticize or idealize anything. It's just this social lens that is very much embedded in our structures, including schools. Right. The white supremacy is baked into the system. And yeah. so it, once you choose to be a part of the system, it's really hard whatever your intentions may be or wherever you come from, to still bend the system is, is a heavy lift. But let me, let me go a little bit to the positive or solution side of this because my first love is, is, is people that are there as parents because their, their child is going to the school. With parents, I'm always reconnecting them to their vision. You're coming together because you want all the children to learn. You want these children to have the best possible school. And you have to keep doing that because if they're very angry about what's going on, they're going to be blinded to what's connecting them and what needs to connect everybody in this system, school, family, and all of them, is we want these children to have the best and safest school possible. We want them to be prepared for college. We want to see all of them as geniuses. One of the reasons why I'm still excited about this, as, as rough as it is, is that I know that families across the board, across race and class, want their children to get a good education. Now, the trick is how do I get them to come together as a community to realize that they have that common vision and goal and what can each do? That, that's interesting. I mean, I hear you saying that that parents and and people involved in the school community really have some shared vision of, of what we want for our kids. But I feel like at least nationally, like what that goal is, or what that common vision is, is is really not well defined yeah. or, or is at least like not defined the same way that maybe a lot of communities would define it. We started under No Child Left Behind this, this grading system where three strikes and you're out schools. You know, they're, they're failing as schools for so long. Now, there were very good intentions in all that because those of us that had been advocates for a long time have been very concerned that there are certain schools that historically were mostly African-American or Latino kids or poor kids, and they were doing poorly. We knew that there had to be accountability. But then when you establish an accounting system that is flawed, seriously flawed, and, and the best result is that the testing companies get billions of dollars, you know, you, know, right. you say, wait, wait, there's something wrong here. But then 
to totally say, well, let the teacher be the best uh, judge. No, no, we need some kind of objective uh, measurement because we also have had a strong history of teachers that were prejudiced and, and were not very good teachers for the kids we're most concerned about. So as advocates, we know that there's been a period, uh, almost two generations now, of teacher bashing, and teachers are very angry about that. And that's right. We're not here to bash teachers. But as advocates, we're going to say, how do we know the kids are really learning? Now, test industry says we've got the tests. Yeah, yeah, BS. Right. Yeah, because, you know, those tests are culturally inappropriate, class inappropriate. You know, they don't show what the kid really knows. So you you need to hold that in, in your mind, but also know, I want to know that the kids at this school are learning. And how do we have evidence of that? So there was some good intent behind No Child Left Behind, but maybe the ways that it has actually been implemented with the tests yeah. we're using today aren't really telling us what we need to know about what's actually happening in school. Yeah, after No Child Left Behind established these strong norms and the states adopted them, we started seeing that parents needed appropriate information, but also had to figure out, coming together with the teachers and administrators, how can we make sure that the children are learning? And as, as a teacher, I tell you, it's not easy, but it can be done. Once you can get yourself outside of the premise that it's that culture, that language, and that class that where the problem is, without ignoring that poverty does bring special problems, at the same time, I as a teacher cannot ascribe the, the failure of the kids simply because the fa family is poor and I can't do anything about it. Yeah, it, it feels like in the past, at least, the, the answer to this was not to kind of change the perception that we have of parents or of students or of communities, but rather just to you know, change the demographic makeup of the schools. We saw in the integration process from 54 to the present, that one solution for integration was, okay, the white families are leaving, so let's create these schools that are very special and have good teachers, and that'll bring the, the middle-class white kids together with the poor kids, the kids of color, and that'll help the poor kids. You know, The dilemma there was that you drain all the regular schools to bring your, your best math, science teachers, and so here we have a pre-med school, nothing wrong with that, but you're weakening the regular high schools and it's, again, the premise that you have to bring in the white middle class, get into the school for the poor kid to learn. We knew that you could create a good school by putting a glass bell jar over it and saying, OK, we're going to let kids with a good math and science course come in. We have the best math and science teachers teaching here. We have a, you have a glass bell jar over this nice campus. We call it a magnet school. You have these dramatically different schools that have become very popular, but you start then reducing your interest in the larger population, all the other kids. In other words, you're still not figuring out how to take the regular school where you have the regular mix of kids and making it an excellent school. Because what you need to do is make sure that every neighborhood public school is excellent. And it can be done when there is the will, the public will in terms of the funding of it, and the, and the will to make sure that, that the kids are taught in the manner that best helps them learn. And so in family leadership, we need to keep bringing up these issues and have families take a hard look at what needs to happen. It seems like it seems like one of the themes here is that is that it really matters that you have an empowered parent community to be able to make sure that these decisions that are happening are in the best interest for the community, whether that's how do you set up a dual language program? How do you make sure that the kids are learning the things that we think are important for them to learn without relying on testing, because there's so many systems in place higher up from, you know, school board level to state level that are maybe not able to or not willing to focus on this parent empowerment thing, that it's really important for parents to be empowered. If it matters that parents are empowered, why does it matter who makes up that parent group who is empowered? Because I think in a lot of particularly newly gentrifying neighborhoods, schools that are beginning to see an increase in white and or privileged families, that those families come with the assumption that they can take those reins and be the empowered parent community. And I'm wondering if you, if you can talk a bit about why it matters that that empowered parent community be representative of the community. Well, I come from certain premises and certain values that are important. 
And I do know that historically, the voice and the power of the family that happens to be poor or wage earning or of color or from a certain neighborhood has never had the strength of value that that of a middle class professional. Right. Across race, but it's, but there's also obviously a, a race color to it. And so these families in this neighborhood that are blue collar and or poor have to have equal access and information to make sure that they are really sitting at the table as equals. Mm. That is the family engagement. And as part of the village, you families, what do you think? What do you think? I remember one year uh, during the No Child Left Behind period, we were invited to work with a very large high school in one of the school districts in El Paso. We were working with the parents, and we had developed this website that gave them information about math scores and the other stuff. And so as they were seeing how their school was doing, they saw that over 50% of the sophomores that had just taken the math test were flunking it. And so the parents saw that. Most of them were Spanish-speaking parents. It was a border community. And they said, well, let's do a survey in our, with some of the families. So they created a survey. They said, the first one is, if, if the student is, doesn't understand a concept, the teacher teaches it in a different way. And they had a scale of one to five to always to never and stuff like that. Another one is, if a student has questions, the questions are answered. And then they had other questions. Then they had two open-ended questions. What helps my student learn math? What blocks my student from learning math, my child? They surveyed about 100 families. It was done bilingually. Most of the surveys were in Spanish, were done in Spanish. And a, a, a sample of students. Well, the results of that survey led to the professional development being modified so that all the teachers teaching math were kind of alerted to the fact that, number one, if a student did not grasp a concept, you had to figure out several other ways of teaching it. Even when we go to tutoring after school, we have the same teachers teaching in the same way, so we're not getting the algebra concept. And then teachers were responding, saying, well, it's too abstract for these kids. It's too abstract for these kids. In other words, rather than change how you teach it, you keep teaching it the way that that 10% can learn it. Mm -hmm. And those are the bright ones. And all the others are just dumb. You know? It's the kid's and, fault. Yeah, it's the kid's fault. You know? right. And so I'm giving that as an example as how you empower parents who might never understand algebra or teach it, but understand certain things that are important for them. They know when, the, when their child is getting turned off and bored with school, yep. you know? And so that's very valuable information for me, a teacher. It might make me uncomfortable because I'd have to change my lesson plan. I have to come out with a bigger bag of tricks in terms of how I teach. And, and so that, that's how parents can influence curriculum and manage instruction and curriculum and things like that without having to make them little teachers at home. Because the research, for example, that is done in terms of parents working with the kids on their homework, the general scores for the class don't go up any more than if parents don't work with the homework. In other words, it's a mixed bag because I think the notion of making the parent the little teacher at home is somewhat flawed. So I think the survey sounds really amazing and this idea of even if parents aren't curriculum experts or aren't pedagogy experts, they obviously we believe they still have value to offer and they're experts in their children. I can tell you from my own experience, right, I've seen a very clear difference coming from a school where there was a concentration of whiteness, a concentration of affluence. It was very different to a school where that's not the case, where we're one of a handful of white families and, you know, a lot of kids who are living in poverty. The way that the principals in both of those schools interact with the community is very different. At our first school, there was a sense of the principal has some accountability, right? Even if it's just getting up in a meeting and answering tough questions, she has some kind of accountability to the parents. Whereas I feel like at the school that we're at, that doesn't exist. So I'm wondering, do you think that this model of parent engagement that you're talking about of parent empowerment, can parents work together to help change that? If the school leader doesn't intrinsically have that or doesn't come to the job having that? Is it something that parents can help change? Yes. Uh, let me give you several caveats. For it to really work, first of all, it's labor intensive and, and it, you have to look at it over a period of time. When 
you focus on building community of families around these issues, even as you face here and now problems, you have to keep your eye on, on maintaining that connection and increasing the number of families in that neighborhood or that area or the families whose children go to a particular school to stay connected with each other. Sometimes you'll have a family-friendly school or a principal that's really open to what we're talking about, just a family leadership, family involvement, and, and the raising of the hard questions and all that other stuff. But most of the time, principals don't feel comfortable with that. So you need to, whether they're comfortable or not, to, to have an equal relationship with a collection of families, a group of families, and those families insist on being heard and that their questions and their solutions be given attention to. Sarah, you're right. If you're a, a middle-class professional, certainly if you're in a white suburb, they're quite attentive to you because they know that you'll take them to court like that if right. they're doing something. Or, or I'm going to pull them out. Yeah, I'm, mm-hmm. take, I'm taking them out, yeah. But before that, I'm going to go to the school board and embarrass the hell out of you, you know, right. whatever. Right. And so when a principal in a, in a school devalues the power of those parents, does not allow for that voice to be heard, mm-hmm. you already have a challenge. Now, it can be overcome because bringing families together around having a good school is not hard. Because you, you always start with that conversation. You go back to that conversation saying, why are we here? Why is it important that a parent be heard? You know, and and especially those ladies who were never asked that question to have them answered and be listened to. And I say ladies because 99% of the participants in this effort, sadly, are women, mostly mothers. But at the same time, there has to be one element that's very important in the coming together is that there be critical dialogue, which means people talk, are listened to, and they listen to the others. That there be equal airtime, and that's a hard one to manage. In other words, because somebody always manages to take over, or there's a repetition of the beefs, of the complaints, and it becomes mm-hmm. they're coming for therapy. They don't know it, but they're coming for therapy right. because this principal Ooh, threw me yeah. out, you know. And so it eats up a lot of time. There's nothing wrong with it, and you know, you have to figure out how to how can I interrupt that without being insulting, because for the first time, somebody's listening to them. But when you hear the same story six times at six continuous meetings, you know everybody's getting bored with it. You know, And so that's that's the challenge. There has to be an external facilitator or somebody who doesn't get submerged into the issues and keeps focusing on, okay, we have a plan. You're going to work on it. This is hard. There's going to be a negative reaction. How do we go beyond that? But also be attentive to each other, be connected to each other, because the stronger the connection is of the families, the longer the relationship is going to last. And it has to last several years. You know, the building of the power comes from the connection over time. Yeah. And it is time consuming and frustrating and many battles will be lost. And so you have to keep everybody together say, you know, they, they go with a battering ram to tear the door down and get rid of the principal. And it doesn't work, you know, so they're going to give up or stuff like that. So you you have to keep bringing everybody together over. We all want a good education for our kids. We're here and we're going to connect with each other. We're going to listen to each other. And, you know, it's not easy. It's not easy. I know I've heard you talk about the importance of alliances and school change work across race specifically. Why are alliances important? And have you seen any common traps that white people can fall into when they're participating in alliances? Guilt. (laughs) First of all, some are unawarely racist. And so you have to call that when it comes up. You know, some sometimes there's somebody that comes from a resource background or a middle class background will have a very patronizing attitude, very loving, very caring, but patronizing of, of parents that have less or less education or less resources. And so you're really sweet, but you're not interacting as these are individuals that are thinking individuals, that are intelligent individuals, and that have power with them already. So if you're white, middle class, or wealthy, you can be a great ally. Just be aware that sometimes you're not aware of of the privilege you're coming from. But at the same time, any cause, any liberation cause has always had allies, even though I might have experienced bigotry against Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in a very personal way. I cannot imagine that whatever successes we have had with laws, with policy, with everything has come about simply because it was Mexicans doing it. Now, I do know that there has to be a historical acknowledgement of what we've contributed that's excluded from our textbooks. That's a different issue. But in terms of allies, 
you have allies in many ways all over the place, and they're very important. As long as in the process, the power and strength of the community is not diminished. In mm. other words, that in the process, an ally understands I have to be a catalyst of support. So as soon as possible, let's make sure that it's Mrs. Garcia, not Ms. Becker talking. Right. But at the same time, know that you have to persist in the battle. Don't let guilt keep you from doing something. The quality of introspection and self-assessment is very important, not as a guilt-producing practice, but simply back away from your action and, you know, and say, let me follow my breath. What's happening here? What's happening here? Because these are tough battles and your feelings are involved and your family and it's it's always complex. So as long as you can step away, have a, a, a critical friend or significant other says, you know what, check out what you just said or what you just did. But also we as adults, and it's hard in the middle of, of, of battle and action, is you have to have some kind of a meditative process, mm-hmm. something that gets you back into with some distance, especially when you're being attacked. The more the defecation hit the ventilator, the more you have to pull away <laughs> and say, whoa, wait a minute. Wait, wait. And then go back into the battle because, you know, it is a battle and, you know, and it hurts when you get criticized and when the door gets slammed, all that happens because it's a long battle. Yeah, I think the importance of seeing the assets versus the deficits keeps keeps sort of circling here because we need teachers to see assets and the kids versus deficits. But I think there's also that aspect in terms of the community building that has to happen for there to be effective, empowered parents that, that as parents, we also have to see each other's assets and recognize that we can't do this with, with just ourselves, that we actually need a group of parents to be empowered. And that requires seeing those assets that everybody's bringing. And I'm wondering if, if in your experience, you've noticed places where the ways that white and or privileged people think about community engagement, think about what it means to be a, and a good involved parent in a school, maybe come into conflict with being able to see those other assets in the community? Well, I already mentioned one, but it's, 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 it's a big problem, certainly historically in PTA, because, you know, PTA started with really powerful intentions. It's the oldest and largest parent organization in the country. Yeah. And, and how it started in different locations of the states was mothers coming together around wanting their kids to have a good education and being true partners with schools. But... You know, at some point in the 50s, the fundraising took over, and mm-hmm. then you'd go to the annual conferences, and 75% of the exhibitors who were actually funding that conference because they paid to exhibit were about fundraising. So it became this tradition. And so I think that the notion that my biggest value is to show up at meetings and to raise money for this school is a very strong one to to counteract. As an advocate for excellent public schools, I want to see the power of the parents influencing the quality of the instruction, the quality of the curriculum, the way the school is is helping kids learn. So that's the parent engagement that I see is having the most effect. Yeah, I wonder about making sure that the investment of time feels valuable because I see a lot here, you know, particularly in a neighborhood that you know, is gentrifying that housing prices are changing rapidly, people are feeling displaced, that big picture educational issues, systemic educational issues, issues that take many years to fix, particularly in a system that has forever largely ignored the voice of marginalized communities, that people feel like, why should I invest my time? Mm -hmm. I've got so many other things to worry about. And if this is a five-year project to make this school or this set of schools better, and and I'm not sure that I can be living in this neighborhood in six months, Mm -hmm. and I know that my parents cared about this and the system never listened to them, their parents cared about this, the system never listened to them, why am I going to show up and give my time when I could be doing so many other things that feel more useful or more likely to to lead to improvement for my families, if I've sort of given up on the system. We're facing that in Houston, but for example, in South Texas Valley, there's more stability in terms of those very poor communities. There's it's a long time before they're going to be gentrified. And yet I have colleagues working in Detroit and Chicago that are facing that very difficult situation. Your, your organizing work is going to be different in each, in each community. I think though, that when you connect 
with families over time that for whatever reason can stick around in that neighborhood or want to stick around. You're going to persist because it takes a certain kind of commitment Mm -hmm. says, I'm in it for the long haul. Mm -hmm. I'm in it for the long haul. And part of it, I've seen it happen just because of the relationship, the love that emerges around these families who might not otherwise break bread together or anything else because Mm -hmm. they're connecting with each other. It's, It's families connecting with the school and with each other over time for the benefit of the children. It happens. But it's a tough one. It's a tough one. Anywhere where you start seeing the deterioration of a neighborhood that then is flipped because people come in, young professionals or whatever, and they they gentrify it, it's going to radically change things in in that neighborhood and those schools. Okay, Aurelio. So our audience is mostly privileged families, and a lot of us are making the decision to intentionally enroll kids either in their neighborhood school or schools where they're not the majority. What's your advice to them about how to be allies in this work, how to show up? What, what do they need to hear? I think that the future of our country, both socially and economically, will come from it becoming a truer democracy than it has been in the past. And the public school is the salad bowl where we have to mix it all up. And that's the only place it can happen. To the degree that you work for and advocate that every neighborhood public school is excellent, supporting the public school system to become stronger, to be well-financed, to become equitable, diverse, all those other things. To that degree, the future of this country will be better. Be conscious that what you do for the public school system is extremely important, is a key to the maintaining not just of economic stability, although part of that comes into it. It's also that we as a society can overcome the, the, the bigotry that comes from class, from race, from gender, all those things. Your support and your decisions that affect when you vote, how you vote, that you are part of a public will that wants to tax itself so that its schools are well-funded, and especially the funds, the schools where poor children are attending, to the degree that you support that, you are supporting a healthy country, a healthy democracy. If your children are in a public school, Do not consider your children as being the ones that take special value to that school. All children are important. All children, whether they speak English or not, whether they come from, however they look, are important. And all families are important. So if you are a middle-class white family, consider how your children, consider that if they're going to become leaders, that the only way they're going to be good leaders is if they have mixed it up and they've, they've been in a truly democratic context as they're learning. Because that's where you know across race, class, and gender what it's like and where you have to start seeing the potential in your peers. Because I know what it was like to be considered a bright child in Laredo, Texas in the 50s. Mm. And it did not prepare me to be a good teacher. Mm. It was also a lie. It's not that I was dumb. It's just that I was smart in the ways that school considered smartness. Mm. I, I was a bookworm. You know, we were poor, but my parents had very strong notions about education. My dad came from Mexico, but he was self-taught. He, he taught himself English by doing crossword puzzles. <laughs> when I was a college freshman and I'd come home and I was writing an essay, I'd say, Dad, give me a synonym for this word. And he'd give me five like that in very broken English. You know, so I was very privileged in my in my upbringing. I, re, I was fully bilingual, you know, even though in Mexico they would make fun of my Spanish. But, you know, I had privileges that it took me a while to realize, oh, no, I'm not dumb, but the smartness that was attributed to me was a different kind of smartness that other kids have, and a teacher has to access those different intelligences. You know, I'll never forget an example of, of, of this, working with parents who had just gotten the letter from school that was saying, in fact, the kids in that school were, 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 were not achieving in math. So they said, okay, we're going to form a committee. And so they finally had a meeting with the math department. The, the lady who was the head of the math department in that high school, as an aside, told one of these ladies saying, no, señora, más del 10% de estos niños no pueden manejar álgebra. Not more than 10% of the students in this school can handle algebra. That was the point of view of the math department. So when they came back and reported that, and I threw it out, a couple of the ladies were being kind of 
well, maybe it's our fault because we don't have an education. And the other ladies jumped on and said, no, 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 mm-hmm. something else. That attitude is wrong. And most of those ladies were from those neighborhoods. They grew up in the valley. They were teaching. They were fully bilingual. That's why they could communicate well with these families. But they already had that frame in their mind that only one out of 10 of the students in this high could really have, handle algebra or two. Forget a pre-cal, you know. And if, if you start there, then when nine kids don't succeed, you're like, yeah, see, this, mm-hmm. is, this is exactly what I expected. Mm-hmm. Of course, they aren't succeeding. Not we need to do something different. The system is working exactly as I expected it. As it was designed to. Yeah. And then that systemic regularity is a killer yeah. because an individual can say, look, I'm not prejudiced. I love these people. Look. Only one in 10 of them can look do algebra. Look, look at their scores. Look at their scores. Right. Yeah. Well, it, it it's just so... It's lovely to hear your passion for it after a remarkably long career. I'm sure you could have moved on to any other things, but to see you're still so passionate about empowering parents, it it, it warms my heart, gives me a little bit of hope. So I really thank you for coming on and for sharing all your expertise with us. Well, I feel honored. Thank you for the time to talk with you. Thanks to Mr. Montemayor. You know, we actually recorded this conversation over a year ago, I think, before the pandemic had even started. And we thought, oh, well, that's fine. Like, the pandemic is starting. Maybe we'll just sit on this for a couple of weeks until we've flattened the curve. And then we can, uh, you know, when life is back to normal, put this out. And here we are, Sarah, a a year and several months ago. A lifetime ago. Little did we know. Right. So long ago. Yeah. But I'm really glad that we're getting to share it now as we start thinking about Heading back to school in person, hopefully next year. Hopefully. I I think there is a real opportunity to reflect on how parents are empowered in schools. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been this big shift in the relationship between schools and parents over the past year, right? Schools have had to rely so much more on parents with kids at home rather than in the building. And I I do think there's an opportunity, at least, to to think about these four ways that Mr. Montemayor pointed out of how parents typically are engaged in schools, right? This, like... Either it's fundraising, it's educating parents on parenting, it's educating parents for themselves, and then there's this family empowerment, which is really what he's focused on. And it, it feels like fundraising, that first piece, is, is that's at least what comes to my mind immediately when I think of a school with engaged parents, right? Is a school that raises a lot of money because the parents love the school and they show up. I, I feel like this is the default for white families. I mean, I know it's my default, like that's what we're socialized as a marker of a good parent when we show up in schools in general, but especially in schools that we know are underserved. So when we were at the white dominant Montessori magnet school, as I will call it, that had a PTO that was raising hundreds of thousands of dollars every year. And as Lynn Posey Maddox discusses in her book about how PTOs can easily become professionalized, raising money can certainly be a full-time job to the point where there's a whole industry of businesses who will help PTOs raise money, take a cut for themselves, who actually profit off of the inequitable school system that we have because they know parents are so desperate to get money and resources into their children's schools. Right. They see the discrepancies. Here's this school that's got four, you know, former grant writers who are now stay-at-home mothers who are going to work full-time to raise money for the school. They're like, oh, crap, well, I can't do that. What I can do is hire this company to come and do the work for me. Yeah, when even the fundraising becomes too much. So the school that we were at was entertaining bringing in one of these companies called Boosterthon. And what they do is run a fun run, kind of this seminal event at the end of a multi-week experience where they have staffers on campus every day coming in to hype up the kids and give them prizes and check in on how many fundraising phone calls they've made the night before. It just very much sounded like a corporate sales environment and a lot less like a a school, a, a Montessori know, a sweet school, little Montessori school. <laughs> right? And I just remember, you know, as members of the community at the time, we pushed back really hard. It just seemed to go against all the values, especially in a Montessori school of like no extrinsic rewards and just a general like, this is a, a Title I school in a district that is educating a lot of kids in poverty. How, if you don't have a family that can give money, 
or a network of people that you can call, how does that make you feel when there's a staffer every day showing up to your classroom? Ugh. And I think to to their credit that year, the school did something a little bit different and you know did their own fun run locally. But I think the bigger point is that we can get on this train that is almost impossible to stop if we're not careful and really do lots of damage and not even pay attention to our own stated values right? because we can just get so wrapped up in what we've been taught as a good parent, you know, that the money is so needed and, and just, and I don't know, we can lose sight of a lot of things very quickly. Yeah. And I mean, and that part is real, right? Like schools are underfunded. Like it's, it's not like schools are sitting there with, with all of the resources they need. It's easy to, to make the leap from schools are underfunded to, I know what I should do about it is hire Boosterthon to come in and, and raise me some money. <laughs> And I'm a white person with resources. Isn't this an obvious use? Isn't this an obvious yeah. connection? And I don't think the answer is no, never, ever do fundraising. That's not what right. integrated schools is saying. Right. What we're saying is <laughs> do it in community and make sure that school-wide decisions like this are done with a representative body of the community of parents and families. Yeah, I mean, I think that fundraising focus is definitely problematic. And I think it also makes it hard to look at other ways that parents can be involved. I think that's one of the things I appreciated so much about Mr. Montemayor's focus on parent empowerment. That like, sure, fundraising is fine, but like it's not going to fundamentally change the education the kids at the school are getting. What is, is actually empowering parents to, you know, have a voice and to be able to speak up and say, this is what my kids need. Absolutely. And this is where I wish Aurelio had maybe gone a little bit harder. We know yeah. that white and or privileged parents already enter schools with lots of empowerment. And if we're not careful, that can lead to taking over, eating up all the other bandwidth available, you know, for everybody. Yeah. Whatever time or energy the school, the principal, this leadership has to spend on parent empowerment it is easy for us white and privileged folks to just take that all up because we walk in assuming that we are that we are empowered that the school needs to listen to us in a way that is not not the same for other people that's right thinking about the lessons that Mr. Montemayor shared you know he he's got such great experience and such great advice for teachers and for school leaders and this real focus on the good that can come when parents are empowered but I think, you know, at the end, he talks about supporting the institution of public education, supporting funding of schools and supporting those structures that allow for parent em empowerment. And that feels like a great place for our audience to focus. That's right. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately is our model of organizing within integrated schools and really how traditional organizing, the goal is to gain power and then use it to change things, you know, usually policy, but to make change. And our model of organizing is different than that. We, yes, we are trying to grow a movement, but we're not trying to grow power. We are actually trying to be aware of the power that we already hold and divest of it, share it, not concentrate it further. And so it's just a very different way of, it's organizing, but it's with spin. Yeah, that's such a great framing for, for what we are doing. All the structures of organizing are set up to, well, the, the measure of success is how much power you've gained and how many new people are listening to you and how many people who are making decisions are paying attention to what you have to say. And on the one hand, like, yeah, we, like, we want more people to pay attention to what we're saying, but not to use it for our own empowerment, but yeah, to divest power. It's kind of an upside down model. Yeah. And I think this is where, you know, thinking about the, the other thing that Mr. Montemayor talked about so much was like this, this change in perceptions that's so important that we have to see value in communities that exist. We have to see value in parents. We have to see value in students. We have to find a way to not just talk about like, well, how do we leverage those things, but actually like really truly internalize that and see those things as valuable. And that's where I think his work has been so powerful. Absolutely. I know for me, he's been a real model of listening. Like, I feel like the first step to that is listening kind of with your whole heart. And we have to push back on the cultural narrative that Black and Latinx families don't care, aren't invested, or don't value education. I feel like that was really ingrained in me as a white person. And one of the things that really helped me change and moved me a lot was reading the book, Despite Best Intentions, which yeah. is a past integrated schools book club pick. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend. Dr. Lewis and Dr. Diamond break down all the research that really proves um, that this is just a racist, untrue trope. Yeah. And I think we have to just be really careful and do a lot of work on ourselves to make sure we aren't bringing that narrative with us when we enter multiracial parent spaces. Because I think if we are, if we haven't unpacked that, 
you know, that will come out in our actions in some way or another. Right. Yeah. There's like one step, which is like, oh, no, all all kids deserve good things. But if you you even enter with that mindset and assume that but black and brown parents don't actually like care that much about it. How can you not slip into white saviorism? How can you not say, I know what's best. I'm going to try to fix this. I'm going to call the call the book. What's it called? Bookathon? Boosterthon. <laughs> Boosterthon people. I'm going to call the Boosterthon people and say like, hey, come on, because I know I know what's best. And then, yeah, you lose that that community, that relationship. And and it's it's hard. I think, like you said, I, that certainly was my my understanding of what it means to be a good parent, of what it means to be a good involved parent at a school was how can you get involved in fundraising? And that was always sort of baked in and and that's hard to push back on. But it's it's important. I think that's the message from Mr. Montemayor is like, that's fine. Do that or don't do that is sort of irrelevant because what's actually relevant is how do we actually get to equitable schools? How do we get to a better future for all our kids? And it's got to be through parent empowerment. That's right. So I think the question is, how can we make space for those conversations. And I think a lot of that time, that means just being quiet so that other people can say, and we get the gift of being able to listen. And then we're much better informed about how to advocate. It's not us driving the bus. Yep. That's beautiful. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for all you do for Integrated Schools. And thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. How is parent empowerment going in your school? Have you seen it working well? Have you seen utter disasters? Let us know. Hello at integratedschools.org or on social media at Integrated Schools or join the conversation on Patreon. You can join us for more conversation about this and help support the work. Keep us ad-free. Patreon.com slash Integrated Schools. If you've joined one of our recent book clubs, you may recognize Sarah's voice. She is one of the co-facilitators of our book club. Our upcoming session in July, reading Heather McGee's The Sum of Us, still has spots available. There's a link to register in the show notes. And as always, I'm grateful to be in this with you as I try to know better and do better. See you next time.